Luke 11, if you'll find your place there, I want to speak this morning on effective prayer. You know, I just mentioned two really difficult uh, situations in some of our church families and then a beautiful story there. Uh, so all of us come in this morning with, with different things going on in our life. And so I don't know what your week necessarily was like last week. Perhaps you were one of those that did lose a loved one or maybe not immediate family, but down the down the line a little bit, maybe a friend, but that was sort of what your week was made up of. Or perhaps this past week you received that doctor's report that was not favorable, something you wouldn't want to hear. Maybe this past week you were one of those that's been slumbering for a number of months and you woke up one morning and you're like, oh my goodness, my taxes are due Monday. What am I going to do? Right? And you're scrambling. You've you just been scrambling for three days to try to figure out how to meet the deadline and you've just succumbed to the fact of, I'm going to have to delay it. I'm going to have to ask for a, an extension because I can't get it done. And, and so you're frazzled over that. Or perhaps this past week uh, you received a call from your child's principal, and you, none of us parents want that call. Hey, I need you to come in because little Johnny or little Susie and whatever the situation is. And so we come in this morning with various things going on in our lives and we could mention many other things, but we have these hardships, we have these difficulties, we have these trials that are happening in our lives, and we just need to realize this morning and come to the understanding that life is full of trouble and life is full of perplexity. I think we can all agree that this is true. I think we also should be able to agree that the trouble and the perplexity of this life can and it ought to drive us to prayer. It ought to drive us back to the Lord. It ought to drive us to live not just in the bad times, but in the good times as well, on our knees, on our faces before the Lord, and walking in dependence upon Him. Martin Luther said this. He said, the less I pray, the harder it gets. The more I pray, the better it goes. I don't think Martin Luther is saying that if I pray more or when I pray more, the circumstances in my life get easier. I don't think he would ever say that the circumstances change much. But his perspective and the power of God deployed in his life seemed to be more and richer in those circumstances when he was praying and being intimate with the Lord. So if this is true, and I would agree that it is, why don't we pray more in our Christian lives? Why are we not spending more time in prayer and in fellowship with the Lord? The Bible, the, the picture of the Bible uh, portrays of God, the, the picture that the Bible portrays of God is one of benevolence and it's one of goodness. And so if you think about why we should pray more, the Bible tells us that that's who God is. He's a God of goodness. He's a God of benevolence. He's a God who it, it wants to be involved with his people. I like what E.M. Bounds says. He, he magnifies this depiction of prayer, and he says, God's promises lie like giant corpses without life, only for decay and dust, unless men appropriate those promises by earnest and prevailing prayer. So E.M. Bounds, who's renowned for being an expert in the area of prayer, says, here's God's answer. It's there. God wants to step into those spaces. And so the answer's already been given, and it's just lying there, decaying, and being covered with dust because we fail to actualize those blessings and those answers because of our prayerlessness. So God both possesses the means and the desire to bless his people. The, the condition lies 
on whether or not his people will engage him in prayer. So why is prayer so difficult for us if God is so wheeling? If we know that he has the desire, if we know he has the means, if we know he can take care of the things in our life, why are we not praying more? It's an interesting question. Last year, I had the opportunity with some of our folks here in our church, a couple from our community, to go to Israel. And when we were in Israel, of course, we see as much as we can during those days. But one of the days that we were in Jerusalem, we went to the Western Wall. You probably have heard of it described or or called the Wall of Wailing or the Wailing Wall. And so we were there in that that part of the old city of Jerusalem, that's the only remains of the retaining wall that surrounded the Temple Mount or surrounds the Temple Mount, the place where the first and second temples were in Jerusalem back then. Every single day, thousands of Jewish people will come to that wall, not just Jewish people. Uh, immigrants or, or visitors like we were, we they go to that wall every single day and they pray and they seek the face of God. And so thousands of people come to pray there at the wall every single day. A number of years ago, there was a journalist, an American journalist from one of the top uh, newspapers in our country that was sent to Jerusalem to, uh, to do stories, just special interest type stories, mainly political stories there in Israel. And so she rented an apartment that was across the courtyard from the Wailing Wall. And every single morning she would get up, she would eat her breakfast, and she would watch the men and women come, file in, go to the different areas, the designated areas for men and women to pray. And she would do that. That was sort of her routine every single day of getting up, eating, maybe drinking coffee and watching people come to pray. One day she noticed an older gentleman he kind of stood out for some reason and she just watched him he came that morning he went to the wailing wall and he stood there for hours praying to the lord he left that afternoon she noticed that he was back and he spent again three four hours praying there at the western wall and so she was wondering about that well the next morning she gets up she eats her breakfast and again she sees this man This goes on for a number of weeks as she's just watching this same man coming back every single day and spending hours after hours after hours praying at the wailing wall. So she decided, there's something to this. I'm a reporter. I I need to figure this out. What's the story behind this gentleman coming to this wall and praying for as long as he does every single day? For all of these weeks. And so the next day she got up, she said eating breakfast at her window. She went down to the courtyard and she was able to catch up with him before he entered the area that only men can pray in. So she asked the gentleman, Sir, I, I've been watching you. First off, I'm a reporter, I'm from America, got an apartment across the courtyard, and, and I'm wondering why is it that you come to the wall and pray every single day? The man responded and says, well, I come in the mornings and I pray for mankind. I pray for unity. I pray for brotherhood. I pray for peace to be among all peoples. And and then I leave and I go home. I enjoy a little cup of tea. I eat some bread. I have some honey. Then I come back in the afternoon and, and I pray for all of those who are suffering from disease, sickness, and illness. I pray and I ask the Lord, if he would, to take away all the things that cause mankind to suffer. As you can imagine, this journalist is moved by this dedication and this commitment every single day to come and to pray. She's also not just heard it from his lips, she's witnessed him coming. And so she asked the man, how long have you been doing this? And he said, I've I've been coming for about 25 years 
to pray at this wall. She really didn't know how to respond to that sort of commitment. And so she said, that must be fulfilling. It must be so moving in your life. Can you tell me, what does it feel like when you come here to the Western Wall to pray for these things? And the old man looked at her and had sadness in his eyes. And he said, it feels like praying to a wall. Today, many people who call themselves Christians and many people who are not Christians, when they pray, it feels to them like they're praying to a wall. Maybe that's you today. And you say, Pastor, I know that we're to pray, and I know that we should pray, and I know the Bible says that God answers prayer, but when I pray, it feels and it seems like I'm just praying to a wall, or my prayers never get past the ceiling in my home. For far too many people, this is their experience when it comes to prayer. You know, and our culture kind of affirms this. Our, our culture would say, prayer is worthless. Prayer means nothing. First of all, there is no God. And because there's no God, there's no Savior. And so there's no one there to answer your prayers. You're just praying to dead space. You're praying to a wall. You're, you're praying to no one and to nobody. So the world tells us there's no reason to pray. So many Christians today have bought into that. You've taken your deepest need, your strongest hurts, your most severe wounds, the things that concern you the most, and you've prayed it to the Lord, and yet you didn't hear anything, and, or at least you didn't think you heard anything, so you've stopped praying. You've begun to feel like it is useless. Thankfully, we have a Bible, and we still believe here at this church that the Bible, the Word of God, is God's infallible, inerrant, and inspired Word, that it is Him speaking to us, the Bible tells us that God is a God of prayer. He's a God who answers prayer. It describes for us both the need to pray and the results of prayer. For instance, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 1, you'll read a story about a woman named Hannah. You ever heard of this lady? She comes to the temple because it's the time of the annual sacrifice. She comes with her family, and she comes, and she bears her soul to the Lord because she is barren. She cannot get pregnant. She pours her heart out in prayer, and the Lord answers, hears, and answers that prayer. And the next year, she has a son, and his name is Samuel. We read how Ezra prayed over the sins of Judah, and the people were moved to confess their sin. We read of Nehemiah, who prayed over the ruins of Jerusalem, and he was moved to rebuild the walls of the city. We see of Daniel that he prayed for wisdom to interpret dreams, and he was given divine insight. We see that Paul prayed for the churches that he pastored and started and the churches that he encouraged. We see how Epaphras prayed and poured his heart out for the Colossian believers. We see John the Baptist and Jesus portrayed as men of prayer in the Gospels. And so if you want to know this morning, does God believe in prayer? Yes, because his word confirms it. All kinds of examples of men and women who prayed to the Lord. We should be prayer warriors. Yet we may feel today that when we pray, it's like praying to a wall, but the testimony of Scripture is clear that there is a God. Think about this, sitting on the throne who is actively engaged to hear and to move. So any problem that we have with prayer, it's not on God's end. Any problem that we have in prayer is on our end. 
We're the weak link. We are the ones who short-circuit the system. God is ready. God is active. God is listening. God is attentive. God is prepared to move in our lives and to move in our church and to move in our community. But for the people of God, are we prepared for that? This is outside the sermon. This is free, in other words. How many times have you turned on the television or watched something online in recent days about the condition of our nation and thought, God, what's going on in America? Right? I'm a political junkie. I'm inundated with this stuff all the time. I like it. I've always liked it. I've always just enjoyed the whole political world that's out there and yet there's times in my life when I see what's happening in our culture today and I think we've just lost it. It's over. But the truth is it's not over. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face then and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. Heal their land. Forgive their sin and heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14. See, prayer moves the Lord in our lives, in our families, in our churches, and in our community, if we would but pray. So today, we come to Luke chapter 11. I realized this morning that I'm probably not going to finish this sermon, though I will try. But be prepared. We may have a second part next Sunday. Luke chapter 11 is where we're at today. We're moving out of chapter 10 into chapter 11. We come face to face with the Lord's Prayer. We see it in Matthew 6, there in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're seeing Jesus teach on prayer again later on in his ministry. And from these verses, 1 through 13, I want to share with you four components of effective prayer. Because here's what I think we are, where we are as a people. Pastor, I understand we should pray. You've even made a great case for that. I just don't know how to be effective in prayer. So I believe the Lord gives us here four things and we always like tangibles, right? We always want something to kind of uh, hook, to put something on, so we can say, yeah, I can put things in my life on that. Here's four things about prayer that you can hang your hat on, right? Four components to effective prayer. But let's read the text first. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. Well, that, we can stop right there and say a lot. If the Son of God had to pray then the sons of God, you and I who are Christians, ought to pray. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will give to him at midnight, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? According to Luke, Jesus is praying. That's what we see in verse 1. Now, it's not quite clear whether or not the disciples were there on their faces praying with Jesus or if they're kind of set aside waiting for Jesus to finish praying. We don't know. But regardless, after Jesus finished praying, they come to him and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, it's probably not hard for us to picture Jesus praying, but did you notice what they said? Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. John? We don't think of John the Baptist as a prayer warrior. We don't think of him as a a man on his knees. Uh, Who's John the Baptist to us? Well, he's a prophet. He's the last of the prophets. He's the great prophet. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. John is the prophet. John is a preacher of righteousness. He's the man who stands out there and calls sin what it is. Right? He had the audacity to, to speak to the leadership and say, what you're doing, Herod, is sinful. You, you've married your, well, you didn't just marry, you stole your brother's wife, Herodias, and, and you've made her your wife. What you've done is sinful and immoral, and it's an abomination to the Lord. So we know John the Baptist as prophet. We know him as preacher. We know him as a baptizer. He's in the river baptizing the people for sin in their life, forerunning to the Messiah. We also know him as a martyr. His head was taken off because of the position that he took on sin. And yet we see here that he was a man of prayer. That's how the Lord's disciples remembered John. He's a man of prayer. Now, who is this John? He's those things that I just mentioned, but let's step back to the beginning of his life. John is a miracle baby. His mom was barren like, like, uh, like Hannah was. And so one day his dad is in the temple and he's offering the, the, the burnt offerings and doing all the things as a priest. And, and God meets him there. An angel meets him there and tells him that, that, that Elizabeth's going to have a baby that's going to be forerunner to the Messiah. It's going to be this wonderful grand thing. And the Holy Spirit's going to be in him from the womb. And so he has this incredible advantage that that we didn't have. See, we don't have the Holy Spirit from, from the birth, but he did. And yet John was a man of prayer that tells us that even with his spiritual advantages, he still had to learn the spiritual discipline to depend on the Lord through prayer. What does it tell us? It tells us prayer is not natural. Prayer is not something you fall into. Prayer is not something that that you're going to just all of a sudden be good at because you're a Christian now. I've told you this before, but all of our spiritual disciplines have to be disciplined in our life. We don't fall into godliness. We don't fall into maturity in Jesus. We don't fall into a love for the Lord and a love for his word. We don't fall into a, a desire and an ability to share the gospel with us. We have to work at that. Same with prayer. If you want to be effective in your prayer, you first need to realize this is not a natural thing I'm going to fall into. It is a thing I have to work at and discipline my life toward. Effective prayer must be taught and learned. 
And so for this reason, there's no shame in not knowing how to pray. There's no shame in feeling today uncomfortable in prayer or praying out loud. Some of you are there today. There's no shame in that, but let's acknowledge it for what it is. Pastor, I don't feel comfortable in my prayer life. I don't really know what to do when I'm praying, and so I'm struggling with that. That's a good place to be. The shame ought to come when we say, this this is the state of my life, but I really don't care about it. I'm just going to continue to live in ineffective prayer the rest of my days and waste all of the things the Lord would have and want to do in and through my life because of my failure and my rebellion against learning how to pray. So as a Christ follower, this morning, would you like to be more effective in your prayers? Would you like to sense that your prayers are arriving at the desired destination or properly describing the need that's there? If so, then you are in good company. You say, what company is that? Jesus' disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us Jesus like John taught his. Jesus, teach us probably like the, the Pharisees taught their disciples. Jesus, we want to learn how to pray. We want to grow and deepen our effectiveness and our love for prayer. Jesus' disciples wanted this, and so they asked the Lord to teach them. And his response to their request here is similar to the teaching that we see in Matthew 6 on the Sermon of Mount when he gives us the Lord's Prayer. There's also some differences. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, it's safe to think and safe to believe that Jesus taught on prayer multiple times. So he's reiterating what he's already said on the Sermon on the Mount here to his disciples with a little different caveat to it. So with that said, let's jump in and let me share with you four components of prayer. We may get through the first one today. Here's the first thing. If we're going to be effective in our prayer, we have to learn to pray intimately. Intimately. How many times does your Christian walk feel like just religious rote, just going through the motions, right? It's just ceremonial. It's just, uh, you know, spiritual hoops you're jumping through, and there's no real intimacy there. Let me just tell you this morning, God doesn't care about how religious you are. Jesus cares about how relational you are, how intimate you are with him. He wants to meet you on that level. And so we see here in verses two through four, these three verses a pattern for praying. It's a model for prayer. So Jesus is not saying every time you pray, you must say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. He's not telling us every single word in these prayers or this prayer you are to say when you pray because that's what prayer is. No, it's a model. It's a pattern. It's an example. It's a way for us to take priorities, put them into our prayers, and allow that to shape our prayer time. A template is another way to look at, and this template has two parts. There's a vertical component, and there is a horizontal component, a, a, a vertical focus, if you will, and a horizontal focus. Now, vertically, prayer has to do with God. Now, obviously, that, that's easy to understand. If I'm praying, who am I praying to? If it's not to the Lord, then you don't need to be praying, but if it's to the Lord, it's vertical, right? It's going to where the Lord is. You're, you're connecting with Him. And so he tells us what? When you pray, 
say, Father, Father. What do you think about when you hear or read that phrase in the gospel here? When you pray, say, Father. That sounds normal. Father, Heavenly Father. That sounds normal for us. But when Jesus said this to the disciples, it was revolutionary. It was different. It blew their minds from, from what they were used to when they engaged in prayer. For us, it's, it's normal because we've had two millennia of Christian influence that's, that's brought that example and taught that to us. And so it seems ordinary for us to say, Father, when we're praying to the Lord, but not so for those in Jesus' day. The writers of the Old Testament, you look through there, you'll see they believed in the fatherhood of God. But it was from the perspective of not so much intimacy, but from the perspective of we have a creator father and we owe all of our existence to him. In fact, you read through the Old Testament, you'll see father mentioned when it's speaking of God 14, 14 times. In every situation, it's impersonal. It speaks to the nation of Israel, not on a one-on-one case. So father in the Old Testament is he is the creator father, the establisher of the nation of Israel. So there is that concept, but they had not brought it down to the one-on-one individual relational component or relational aspect to the faith. And so Jesus here changes this understanding of God as father. Many scholars believe that as Jesus said this, He says Father in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. And definitely he's not speaking Greek here. Luke is writing his gospel in the Greek. All of our gospels and all of our New Testament, for that matter, is in the Koine Greek language. And yet many scholars would say that when Jesus says, when you pray, say Father, he's Aramaically saying Abba. Father. What does Abba mean? You've probably heard teaching on this before, but Abba is this informal Aramaic word that was commonly used by children who would address their father. And the word simply means something like this for us in English, daddy. And yet I think we should not just dial it down too much to the informal, but allow there to be some reverence there. So we should think of it along these lines, dearest father. But there's intimacy there, right? Intimacy within this relationship between father and son. Father and the sons and daughters of God, you and I. So by using this term, Jesus transformed the relationship with God. Think about this. From a distant corporate experience into an intimate one-to-one bond. No longer is God this distant corporate God who's over the nation, but he's my God. And I can... I can engage him. No longer do I have to go through a priest for for someone to stand in on my behalf and to bring my petitions before the Lord, but now I have instant access to God the Father. That's what Jesus is establishing here. So when we pray, when we engage the Lord in prayer, if we want it to be effective, there has to be this understanding of intimacy. God wants to hear your words and hear your concerns and hear your needs. God wants to meet with you in the prayer closet. Don't you think that would make us more effective in our prayer if we understood that and engaged him from that perspective? Yes, pastor, I agree with that. That is wonderful. He says, when you pray, say, Father. But he takes it a step further. He says, hallowed be your name. 
For the Jew, God's name referred to the reality of the essence and the nature of God. So when he says, hallowed be your name, what does that mean? God, you're holy. God, you are to be revered. God, you are set apart from everything else. You are absolutely holy. There is nothing unrighteous in you or about you. You never have an evil thought. You never have an equal an evil action. God, you are completely and utterly holy. You are separated from us. We stand in your holiness. We, we, we observe your holiness. That is your nature. That is who you are. So when he says, say, Father, hallowed be your name, he's basically saying this, may you be given in my life, may you be given in my home that unique reverence that your character and your nature as Father demand. Man, man. If we went into our prayer closet, we realized the holiness of God is there. And he wants to meet with us. Remember, Jesus is fulfilling, not just changing. He's fulfilling everything the Old Testament has been laying out. Could the people of God come into the holy of holies in the temple? No. Only the high priest could go into that space, and he could only go in there one day a year, and if there was any sin in him whatsoever, instant death. Why? Because God in his holiness cannot and will not have any fellowship with sinfulness. And here's Jesus fulfilling all of that through the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection, and now we're not a we're not a person who has to go through a priest. We are a priest unto ourselves, but really through the priesthood of Jesus Christ, we have instant access to the holiness of God. When you pray, you're not praying to a wall. You're praying to a father who wants to know you and to a holy father who wants to know you. That'll make you effective. It goes on. Give us each day our daily bread. Literal reading of this phrase is our bread tomorrow. Give us today. If you have an ESV, it makes that point in the footnote there. So this prayer is a request for God to meet one's daily needs. I mean, think about it. If you're going to go before the Lord who's holy and he's a father, and, and he's gonna, we're going to touch on this as we get later on into this passage when he talks about a good father versus a bad father, when we think about a father interacting with a child or his child, it's always for the good of the child. And so naturally, Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, how would you be your name? Give us this day our daily bread. But before that, what does he say? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. I skipped over that part, so let's back up. Your kingdom come. It's to pray very similar to what the lawyer in chapter 10 was asking for. <laughs> What, what is life? What, what is the kingdom? What, what is the, the resurrection? It's to pray for the Lord's return. It's to resurrect the dead. It, it's, the, it's to see Jesus or the Father bring eternity, bring in eternity where there is no sickness and death anymore. Remember the man at the wailing wall who says, every day I go and I ask the Lord if he's willing to remove the suffering of people. How, what does that feel like? What do you experience there? It's like praying to a wall. And yet the Bible calls us here through Jesus Christ that when we pray, pray the kingdom come. Father, I pray that your will be done in this world just as it's done in heaven. That's why he lays it out in Matthew's gospel. 
And so we want to pray for the kingdom. We want to pray for his will to be done. We want to pray that, that he would be, everything he desires would come to fruition in our lives. So effective prayer is intimate prayer that connects God as a loving father who is holy, brings his kingdom into this world. So there's this verticalness. Now we move to the horizontalness where he says, give us each day our daily bread. So we bring to him our needs and our requests. We see here that God is concerned with those things. Daily needs, physical needs, spiritual needs in our lives. Though we're to bring those to the Lord because he cares. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, he goes on to say. Jesus' teaching here, as well as in Matthew's version, suggests that forgiveness for his disciples must be fulfilled as a condition before we can ask God for forgiveness. So, as a Christian, do we sin? You guys sin ever? Please nod your head like this. Or you're sinning. <laughs> and we'll see you up here later. The gospel leads us, when we receive the gospel into our life by faith, we're trusting in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of that sin and eternal life that he's promised. What we're doing in that moment, or what happens in that moment, is positionally we are made righteous, right? Second Corinthians 5, uh, we have become new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So there's this... There's this um, grand exchange, this great exchange in our lives where Jesus gives us his righteousness and he takes our unrighteousness and there's this exchange. So the cross paid the penalty for our sin, our unrighteousness, and Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection proved his righteousness that is good on our part. So we receive that, we give him the junk. That's what happens positionally in our lives. Now, every day we have to walk that out. We have to practice righteousness in our lives, which is an ongoing, failing attempt. So today, you're going to leave here. Some of you will leave here, and you're going to have a little bit of a lead foot going home. You might get pulled over by one of our fine Powhatan deputies. And so they're going to come up and say, Mr. So-and-so, uh, you know how fast you were going. I don't, yeah, about 75. You know the speed limit here on 60 is 55. You say, yeah, I didn't realize I'm trying to get home. We just had a great day at Red Lane. You ought to go to Red Lane. God's doing a lot of things there. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to help you. I know the sheriff, know many of the deputies. Not sure if that's going to get you out of a ticket. But you're going you're to make the case for yourself. But reality is you broke the law. You deserve a ticket. You also didn't just break man's law. Because you broke man's law, you broke God's law. So you sinned. So you shouldn't just ask forgiveness from the deputy and, and the court system, you should say, Lord, today I was a little heavy-footed, and, and I should have obeyed the Lord or the, the man's law here in this county. So you bring that before the Lord, and you're asking him to forgive you. Have you been forgiven in Christ? Yes, on the cross. Should you have ongoing forgiveness or ongoing confession leading to forgiveness in your life? Yes, because you want to walk in righteousness. Does it change or make you in a better standing with God positionally? No. Right? You've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless you live. Galatians 2.20. Yet, if I'm going to walk in sanctification, I can't hold on to sin and yet claim the cross. So I'm asking for forgiveness. What Jesus is saying here is, when you come and pray, you ought to pray for forgiveness. But when you pray for forgiveness, make sure that you're forgiving others. 
There's a parable in the Gospels where Jesus tells the story of a man who, was, who owed this tremendous debt, right? And so the, 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 um, the man that he owed the debt to came and he forgave that debt. And then, rather than being grateful and, and kind of passing that on or paying forward that grace to the next person, there was someone who owed this man who was forgiven much, this man owed him little, and yet he was not gracious to him. He had him thrown in jail. Jesus tells us the story there to teach the principle that we've, when we've been forgiven much, we must forgive much. So Jesus says, when you pray, ask for forgiveness, but make sure that when you ask for forgiveness, you have also already and are ongoing forgiving others who sin against you. So... For us, we need to understand that those of us who've experienced the forgiveness of Christ, we are to forgive and to be forgiving. Now, Pastor, you say, does that mean I've got to just forgive every single person, even though they continue to hurt me and continue to harm me, continue to, to, to uh, you know, make promises and keep breaking those promises? Do I have to forgive them? Yeah. That doesn't mean you trust them and you entrust things to them when they have proven themselves to be untrustworthy. So you don't hold bitterness against them. You pray for them. You encourage them. You try to get the gospel to them. But it doesn't mean you're foolish enough to say, well, I've got to forgive you, so I'm going to welcome you back into this relationship just like you've always been. No, show some wisdom there, but don't be unforgiving and embittered in your heart because why? The gospel has set you free. The gospel has set you free. He goes on to say, and lead us not into temptation. The final petition here horizontally is not to be misunderstood that God is the tempter. In our small group, we're on a little bit different curriculum. So we were dealing with some of these things. In James 1.13, James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us that God is not our tempter. God is not the one who throws scenarios in our path to say, I hope I can trip them up this time. That is not God's nature. How do we know that? He's holy. That doesn't sound holy to me to, to tempt someone or entice someone into sin or entice someone into disbelief of God. That's not what God does to us at all. He is not the one who tempts us. So how should we understand this? Lead us not into temptation from our English perspective, would lead us to believe that God is the one who, if we don't pray this, is going to lead us down a path that would be, our to, be to our demise. That's not God's nature. Who wants to serve a God like that? That's Greek Roman mythology type gods. That, that, that's the gods from the surrounding nations of Israel who are, who are finicky and fickle and, and anthropomorphic. They're, they're like you and I. They're like humanity. That is not who our God is. So this final petition, petition is not to be understood as God being the tempter, yet we know in life that this world is saturated with temptation. So where does that temptation come from? It comes from your own heart. It comes from your own inner wickedness. It comes from your flesh and your fallenness. I, you say, I, I thought I was redeemed. If you know Jesus, you are. Yet that flesh has not yet been redeemed. That's the process of sanctification. So positionally, you're righteous. Practically, you're not yet all righteous. So you're warring against this flesh. I love how Paul said it in Romans chapter 7. And here's the, I mean, we think of him as the chief of saints. And yet he says of himself, I'm the chief of sinners. He says, I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do. 
and the things that I do want to do, I find myself not doing them. You say, what does that mean? I think that means that Paul understood the struggle in his prayer life. You think that's something he wanted to do? Yeah. I love reading his epistles, his letters to the churches, when he says, I never cease praying for you, James Taylor Version. I never stop praying for you. I mention you all the time in my prayers. He says that to the Philippians. I think he says it to the Colossians. Paul was a man of prayer. Paul was a man who walked with God. Paul was a man who was intimate with a father through the Holy Spirit and the person of Christ. And yet I think what Paul is telling us in Romans 7 is there is a struggle in my life when it comes to the things that I know I ought to be doing and the things I want to do. And yet because of this flesh, I'm constantly in a battle. Constantly in a battle. And yet it's not the Lord that's leading us in temptation. It's our own heart. It's our fallenness. It's living in a fallen world. You don't have to go far for temptation. Right? I don't know what your vice is, but it's out there. Turn on the television. If your vice is food, what do you see on the commercials? Food, right? You go, you go into the grocery store. What do they put at arm's reach? Good stuff or bad stuff? I mean, you walk through the aisles, are they lined with broccoli and celery? First of all, celery is a vile weed, and you should never eat it. I, I, I strongly dislike what God created in celery. It's just not to my liking. Hate's a strong word. Broccoli, on the other hand, is really good. Raw, cooked, doesn't matter. Delicioso. Uh, love it. And yet, I walk the aisles of Food Line or wherever I'm at, and I don't see broccoli just and, and all the healthy stuff just lining the, the aisles. I don't walk to the cash register, if you still do that. I don't walk to the cash register, and there at the register is all the healthy stuff. No, it's candy bars and, and, and little Debbie snacks and, and all of the yummy stuff, right? If your vice is substance abuse or alcohol or anything like that, you can find it. It's out there, right? Again, you walk down the aisles at the grocery stores. It's there. And so if you're prone to that, if you're prone to alcoholism, if you're prone to nicotine addiction, it's there, right? I'm touching on some areas that's, I know, uncomfortable. But, hey, we're to be under no control outside of the spirit of God's control in our life. So if you're leaning on those things, if it's food, if you run to food rather than running to the Lord, that's sin. If that's your crutch, you say, it's just food. It may be junk food, but it's just food. Hey, if you're relying or leaning on anything, anything outside of the Spirit of God in your life, it is sinful. It's not just alcohol, tobacco, drugs, sex, money. You name it. If it leads you to take your eyes off the glory of the Heavenly Father and the intimacy He wants with you and the goodness of the Father, that is sinful. And we live in a world that's pervasive with that stuff, saturated with that stuff. Drive down the interstate, billboard after billboard after billboard of things that can entice you. But, man, those are the easy things to spot. What about the little things that are out there? All the things that are, are, are right there at our fingertips that are enticing. He says, lead us not into temptation. So what are we praying when we pray this? We're saying, Lord, help me 
to lean in to you. Help me to run to you. Help me to trust you as my help, as my protection, as my provider. Don't allow me, en enable me to not believe the lie that what this thing is saying to me or promising me is better than what you've already promised. I don't know if alcohol, uh, beer commercials and all that stuff, beer commercials have gotten way crazy. Let's not even go there these days. But I remember back in the day, I'm old enough to remember this, that every time you saw a beer commercial, there was a scantily clad bikini model that was telling you basically, if you drink this, that's your lifestyle. And every person, every man who's in his flesh would say, I want that life. <laughs> Just being honest. Does that life come with that promise? No. Hear me, I'm not saying beer is bad. I don't drink because I don't like the taste. If you want to drink, that's your prerogative between you and the Lord. You do as your conscience leads you to do. Alcohol, drunkenness is sinful. Drinking alcohol is not. But the promise from the alcohol makers has always been if you do this, then you will receive that. Or, or the other, when you get into it, you begin to say, Man, I've got to have this because I, just, I need somebody to kind of knock the edge off my life. It's been a stressful day. And so that is the promise you're getting from it. With all my anxiety, with all my stress, if I can partake of this, I'm going to feel better about myself. Does that happen? No. I may take the edge off for a little bit. Does it fix your problems? Not at all. Not at all. So whatever the vice is, whatever the thing is, the promise is there saying, I will fulfill all the needs, all the desires in your life, and yet it never lives up to the hype. So here, what we see is this portion of this prayer, lead us not into temptation, is a call back for us to say, God, you're really the one who is my provider. You're the one who feels and satisfies the deepest longings of my heart. And when I'm anxious, I run to you. I run to you. And when I need protection, I run to you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation is overtaking you but that which is common to man, which means we all deal with the same stuff. But God is faithful who will give you a way of escape. What's that way of escape? His presence. We're out of time. So we're going to touch the next two points next Sunday. But here's what I want you to remember. As we pray intimately, and as we understand that the Lord desires to have this relationship with us, you get down to the very end of the passage, and he, after he gives the parable and he talks through it, he says, hey, if, you're, you, know, if you know any father, this father's not going to give a serpent in place of a fish. He's not going to get a scorpion in, in, in place of an egg when the son or a daughter comes and says, Daddy, I need something to eat. No father's going to give something bad. So if, if a bad, evil, worldly father can know how to give good things to his children, how much more will the heavenly father give you his spirit? His spirit. You see, if you want to learn how to pray effectively, it begins with the understanding that God wants to be intimate with you, wants to spend time with you. He's not remote. He's not distant. We serve a God who is, theologically, we say this, he's transcendent. He's in the 
outside of the realm that we can be in, and he's inside the realm that we are in. He stands in both worlds, which means he's right there at your fingertips. He's right there at the edge of your lips. He's right there anytime you need him. He is personal and present in your life. This morning, if you're wondering how you can be more effective in your prayer, keep that concept of God. He is your father, and he's there. This morning, if you're not in relationship with Jesus Christ, hear the same thing. God desires to be your father. You say, I'm already a child of God. No, you're not. You're a creation of God. There's a big difference. Psalm 139 tells us that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. It speaks of the fact that when we are created in the womb, God created us in the image and likeness of God. That's Genesis 1. That does not mean you are a child of God. You're only a child of God when you are born again. Jesus told the, the priest Nicodemus that we must be born again. In other words, we have to be born again because we're dead spiritually. You're cut off from the Lord because of your sin. So you need new life. You need to come into relationship with God the Father through God the Son, Jesus Christ. And when you do that, he gives you God the Spirit to lead you into all truth. This morning, there's some of you perhaps here or online watching us that you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's where you need to begin this relationship. So we're going to have a time of response, an opportunity for you to respond from that standpoint. Here's what I'd want you to say. Pastor, I need a relationship with God. Everything you were talking about, that's what I want, but I have no ability to get there because I have not yet come through Jesus Christ. So I want to be saved. That's what I would ask you to come and just say. We'll get you with one of our, um, our encouragers, talk through the gospel with you, and help you walk through that decision to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. For us as believers this morning, and we're two minutes past time, Here's what I'd ask of you. What is God saying to you about your prayer life? Is there intimacy there? Or is there more of a guilty distance? You pray when you need to pray. And that means the house is burning down. Do you think an intimate father only wants to hear the bad things and the big things? No, he wants to hear all the things. When I come home, well, my kids are getting to the age they don't talk, but when they're younger... You come home, and they want to tell you everything about their day. Do I need to know all of those things about their life? You know, young parents, what are you guys talking about right now in your home? Poop. <laughs> Poop. Everything in the young, young families, everything centers around diaper changes and, and potty training and, and all of that. Is that a conversation that I want to have all the time with kids? No. But is that what they talk about, the little things? Yeah. So what do I do as a father if I'm a good father? I just listen. And I engage. But that's what God wants to do with you every single day, all the time. So is that your prayer experience with the Heavenly Father? If not, begin to work in that way. It's not a, man, you, you go from nothing to um, modeling Jesus' hours upon hours of fellowship with the Father in prayer. It's not an instant big time leap, but let's take one day and put one foot in front of the other and begin to walk toward intimacy with our Heavenly Father. Can we do that? Can we do that? Well, let's respond. This is a good moment to begin. Trevor, you come. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we just acknowledge your holiness. We acknowledge your goodness. 
We acknowledge your desire to move in our lives. And God, we just confess this morning that your desire to do that far surpasses our desire. For that, we're grateful. Pray this morning that your kingdom would come in our lives, that your will would be done there. We pray that you would meet our needs, that you would, God, meet us at the, at the level of our greatest need in every other level that there is. Spiritually, we pray that you'd meet the needs of those who need a relationship with Jesus today, that you would bring them under deep conviction over their sin. May they feel that weight, that separateness, that condemnation that the, that the Bible describes and talks about. May they feel that today, be moved to faith and repentance. Father, I pray for us as a church family that whatever the daily need is, whatever the physical need is today, you'd meet that need. And we trust that you have not only the means to do so, but Lord, you have the desire to do so. Pray, Father, that you'd help us to be forgiving. Lord, so many times it's easy for us to receive forgiveness from you and yet not reciprocate that, pass that down to the next person. Lord, it gives us a faulty view of the gospel. It portrays an even faultier view of the gospel to those who are not forgiving. So, Father, may we receive forgiveness, may we give forgiveness in our lives, and we pray that you would help us to walk in holiness. Lord, to say no to the temptation, to say no to the enticement, to be willing to look in the the deep recesses of our heart and allow your word to wash those spaces. Lord, to to call those spaces out, that that we would take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ in our lives and allow the Spirit, the, the, the answer to our prayers, to rule supremely and to lead us into all truth. I pray that that is beginning in our lives right now, and as we move into this time of response, may it be evident. Call those who need to be saved this morning to salvation. Call us as believers to a deeper and more intimate walk with our Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.